This is Trepwire Week in Review for week ending February 18th, 2022. I'm Martha Kocher with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS commercial real estate and CLO markets. I'm with Manus Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Henry, Head of Siri and Advisory Services. This week, Russia-Ukraine tensions stole the spotlight, and Fed minutes didn't seem to spook investors much. In economic news, a lot of fresh data. Retail sales rose last month, and wholesale inflation surged again. Jobless claims rose last week, but the four-week average was lower. Mortgage rates increased, and fourth-quarter hotel earnings underscored a continued recovery. Manus, there was a lot of data to digest this week. What stood out for you? Well, the two big things, of course, one was inflation-related, and the other was Russia-Ukraine concerns, right? The saber-rattling that's going on and, and the heated rhetoric. I'll start off with the inflation side. And then we'll move into the, the geopolitical side of things. We saw the PPI number came in above estimates. When you looked at CNBC that morning, and Steve Leisman in particular, he was quite dour. He saw that number and, and you know he was alarmed by the number, um, as I think many people were. But when the markets opened, there was very little reaction. You know, and, and it, it seems to be a little bit of the case that the first time you are hit with a negative number like we were with CPI a couple months ago, and, and then the second time and the third time, the markets really get rattled and things sell off. In this particular case, the markets really didn't sell off. It, it's almost like they've priced in high inflation for this foreseeable future, and they think it's okay. Part of that might be the fact that even though costs are going up, there hasn't been much of the way of consumer pushback or a consumer strike. Spending seems to be going along quite well, and that might uh, explain the muted reaction to what we saw on the inflation number. Uh, tied to the inflation number was the Fed minutes. I guess, depending on where you sit, I guess, is, is how you reacted to them. The Wall Street Journal came out and said the markets rallied after the minutes released because the Fed wasn't more hawkish than they were. They did talk about accelerating rate hikes, pushing up the curve, doing more rate hikes, and so forth, and the markets reacted with a sigh of relief. That was the Wall Street Journal takeaway. My takeaway from reading them was more that people think inflation is a concern and the Fed is now taking it seriously too. And they might finally wrestle inflation down to the ground. We'll see. You know, it was a tomato, tomato type thing between what, you know, our perspective was in the Wall Street Journal. But that was the big headline. And I'll let you weigh in. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, sometimes when I read the Fed minutes, I wonder if they just, you know, forgot to change the date and supplied the uh, the previous minutes this time because it seems like we've been talking about these same topics with the same strategy. We're gonna, you know, look at two rate increases as twenty five basis points, as fifty basis points, and we're not really seeing any of the action yet. So I think to your point, like people are pricing that in, they're anticipating there's going to be something. I think we're all at the at the point of just saying like, what is it going to be, and let's get the party started. Um, so. Nothing earth shattering there. I think we all know where we're at. The inflation narrative is not going away. We talked about that at length last week. I think it's it's good that it's top of mind. Hopefully, we'll see some some action from the Fed to maybe tamp that down some. Um, but at this point, you know, there wasn't anything in there that just jumped off the page at me that said, you know, uh, we need to be worried one way or the other. So you're more on the side of the the Wall Street Journal. You saw it as status quo and, and a sigh of relief. I guess maybe I was reading between the lines a little bit. It seemed to me when they said moving up the, the, the pace of the rate hikes, I took that to mean 
you know, a little bit more hawkish, you know, they're going to move quicker than we thought. And that's a good thing in my estimation, but obviously uh, others took it the other way. And it sounds like you did as well. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think it, it would be a good thing if they would get get about that business, right? <laughs> the challenge is they've just been talking about it. Like we need to right. see some action. So, um, so yeah, if they, if they start moving the needle, um, I think that's a good thing for all the reasons we've outlined in the previous episodes. But uh, to me, like, I think we've heard this enough. Like, uh, we need to see some action, not just not just talking about it. Yeah, as you say these things, it just reminds me of what my life is like at home, where, where at least if I were in my wife's mind right now, she would say, man, that guy, Manis, it's all about, you know, talk and no action, whether it's taking out the trash or emptying the dishwasher or painting the bathroom, you know, it's, it's all talk and, and nothing ever happens. And, and it's probably true. Moving on to the geopolitical side, we're recording this on Thursday, like we usually do, 4.30, the market has closed on Thursday. Heavy selling today, CNBC and others were chalking up that selling to new concerns that uh, war in the Ukraine was imminent. We've seen this several times over the last couple of weeks where the markets sell off, where they think that push has finally come to shove and war is at hand. And um, so I'll start out with an early shout out, kind of a serious one. We tend to talk about everything in economic terms, and, and I'm as guilty as anyone of this. And I write about uh, economic things every morning in our trip wire and so forth. And it's very easy for me to kind of rattle off the tongue or rattle off the keyboard that the market sold off 1% or 2% because of war concerns in the Ukraine. But rarely do I take a step back and, and think that there are men and women who are going to be putting their lives at risk. Um, from three different countries, perhaps, maybe the United States, maybe people in NATO, so maybe more than three countries, uh, the Ukraine and Russia. And, and I know for a fact that there are listeners here who have kids that are in the military and are wondering if their sons or daughters are going to be pulled into this thing. So I, I just wanted to do an early shout out for all those people that have nieces and nephews, sons and daughters that could be facing action in the Ukraine. It's easy to push this stuff off with a sentence or two in our trep wire or in our commentary that the market sold off because war could be coming, but rarely do we mention the sacrifices that people make to defend this country and to defend their own countries and so forth, like in the Ukraine. So I just wanted to throw that out as an early shout out and hopefully cooler heads will prevail. Yeah, I agree with you, man. It's the, the people element. I've seen some of the pictures of people in the Ukraine training or, or preparing themselves for an invasion. And, you know, with three kids of my own, it's just, it's a scary thought that that could happen for them. And so I, I appreciate you kind of taking that position today because it is easy for us that, that cover the finance economic news to kind of go through this at a higher level. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's a lot of people's lives at stake here. So I agree and echo the sentiment and hopefully the cooler heads will prevail. Manis and Lonnie, that is uh, well said and, and obviously dominating the headlines because I think it's a big concern for many people, at least in the last, uh, last week or so and more so today. Let's turn some of our focus to the commercial real estate market. Um, I wanted to kick off this week with a lot of industrial stories. It was a big week for industrial deals. And for me, I, I spent some time this week looking at price comparisons, what things were being sold for, and uh, just kind of really amazed by what people are paying for industrial and I'll give a couple of stories, and then I'll give one um, hardcore anecdote to, uh, to wrap it up, and we'll get Lonnie's thoughts as well. Uh, the first story I saw was 
This comes from Natalie Castelny of the Philadelphia Business Journal. She's certainly in my top 10 commercial real estate journalists that I follow along with uh, Brian Bandell in South Florida and Danny Ecker and Abby Gallum in Chicago and Alex Barrera out in the West Coast all do a terrific job following real estate in their cities. She put out a piece this week that an Amazon leased industrial facility in Kanchahakin, PA, sold for more than $800 per square foot. That's more than two times the previous record for the kind of Bucks County area of Pennsylvania. It's 120,000 square foot property. It sold for $97 million. So just blows away the last high watermark, which I think was under $400. You know, it's like 335 or something like that. In Southern California, the Commercial Observer was reporting that Rexford paid $170 million for five Southern California warehouses, 150,000 square feet, 436 per square foot. The seller was Atlas. Why this one got my attention is Rexford was paying more than double what Atlas paid in 2019. So in two and a half years, we've seen the value of these five warehouses go from 29 million to 64 million. Similar story in Tampa there, EQT Exeter paid almost $40 million for a property that's leased to Refreshco Beverages. That's up from 16 and a half million in 2019. That comes with a bit of a footnote because Refresco just re-upped their lease there for a long period of time. So there is actually cash flow change at that one. InvestCorp bought a huge class B, B plus warehouse portfolio for an average of $114 per square foot, 64 properties in Chicago, Dallas, New York City. I could go on and on and on about this, right? The number of record-breaking industrial sales is through the roof. And I could probably give you 10 more, but I wanted to focus on something that really caught my attention in Miami. So in Miami, in December, a pair of cold storage units totaling 320,000 square feet sold for $44 million. Um, one is in Miami, and I think one is in Hialeah. These two properties sold independently, one in March of 2020. So after COVID began, and in July of 2020, well after COVID began, for 70% less than the, what they sold for in December. And put that in perspective, this is an Amazon, right? This is an Amazon coming in and completely changing the fabric of a warehouse or distribution center from something old economy to new. And you could say, wow, that justifies a 70% price hike. This is cold storage, right? And it was sold after COVID began. So you already knew people are going to need more cold storage now than ever before, right? They're going to need food delivered to their homes and to grocery stores. And yet this thing, one is uh, leased to uh, super value, the other to true grade foods up 70% since the summer of 2020. And, and that just gives you a perspective of um, how crazy on fire this is, this market. Yeah, man, it's the industrial market has uh, definitely become the darling. It's, uh, I'll, get, I'll get my weekly Twitter mention out here. Uh, as you guys know, I'm kind of a, a lurker on the Twitterverse and uh, don't post much, but I like to read all of the commentary. 
And the narrative in the industrial space that I've seen online is it's an encumbrance to have a, a, a tenant with a lease in your property because the reality is the market rent sometimes is 2x what the current tenant is paying. So unless you're leasing to Amazon in a build-to-suit scenario or you're buying a property that's leased to Amazon that was just signed in the last year or two, uh, if you have legacy tenants in place, you know the, the recent rental rate boom in the industrial market the upside is is real and you know people are underwriting deals and by the time they actually get them acquired the rents are even higher than what they underwrote so we talk a lot about multifamily rent increases we talk a lot about compression in the multifamily cap rate sector the same can be said for industrial and maybe even to your point after looking at these stories today uh, in a more robust fashion the industrial sector is on fire it's been on fire since the pandemic I think what's interesting, though, or what makes this interesting in the in the medium to longer term is a lot of these are special use buildings. So the Amazons, the cold storages, you know, are those, the data centers, are those things going to be in such hot demand in three, five, seven years? I mean, multifamily has some inherent benefits, but is the technological advances that, that makes Amazon cutting edge now going to still be in place in 10 years when these leases start to turn over? So, you know, we were looking at some of our TREP data this week. So TREP manages a, a, a bank balance sheet consortia. We have uh, contributing banks that give us their loan information and we anonymize it. And we've talked about it on the podcast before. It's called Taller, uh, TREP's anonymized loan level repository. And I was going through some of that data this week. And if you look at Q321 industrial loan origination volume compared to the average industrial origination over 2019, we're like 233% in the, in the third quarter of 21. So what that tells me is it's not just on the sales transaction side where we're seeing these huge upticks. The lenders like these properties. They're making you know, broader loans, larger loans, geographically more diverse. You know, I think a contrarian approach to this might be, does a sector really have the juice in it to, uh, to stay at these prices for the long term? Well, that is exactly kind of where I was going, I guess, with that cold storage sale, right? Cold storage is not something that's new and sexy, right? It's been around for a long time. It's not the kind of thing, again, you brought this up in your comments as well. It's not converting old school to Amazon, right? This was cold storage 10 years ago. It's going to be cold storage 10 years from now. How do you justify a 70% increase in value for something that, you know, isn't really, you know, everything's in the details. Perhaps these, these particular properties are getting re released up or, or, or the rents have uh, been renegotiated because a lease was ending or something like that. There's always that detail that a broker will know that maybe we don't, but that one just stood out for me, given the briefness in the run-up in time and the fact that this was not something new custom built or, or sexy in the market. So it, it just goes to show that the tentacles of this rally in industrial are very deep and very wide. Yeah, I would agree. I think the supply chain maybe has an impact on that. So some of the disruptions we've seen with the supply chain maybe makes cold storage a safer play now than it did in the past. Like the unknowns, right, are being factored into some of those, you know, typically, as you said, unsexy type of properties. So very interesting. And we saw some big deals in some other property types as well. Which ones caught your attention? Yeah, there's a couple in, in every single sector that we could talk about. We saw a story out in California 
Uh, we were joking about that at the, this about the office. If only every BNC mall had this exit option. The shops at Panforan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in San Bruno, California, sold for 328 million. That's the sum of 95 million for the inline stores, 105 million for the JC Penny parcel. Go figure, and 128 million for the Sears parcel. Right. Most times you're seeing Macy's and Sears parcels at these older malls sell for five million, three million, ten million, 128 million for Sears. Well, the backstory to that is the developer is going to come in there, plow it over, and turn it into a life science campus. It's too bad more BNC malls don't have that particular outlet to do that. A couple of other record-breaking stories in Phoenix, the Roadrunner on McDowell. Uh, Yield Pro is saying that that property went for $550,000 per unit, which is a new all-time high for the Scottsdale, Arizona market. Uh, they also say the total price of $193 million was the second highest dollar amount paid ever in Arizona for a multifamily property. And I should say that highest price ever per, per unit is not just for Scottsdale, for all of Arizona. Uh, in Westport, Connecticut, the Stanford Advocate, which another local publication that does great work on the commercial real estate side of things, Alex Soul with his story, 95,000 square feet uh, across two buildings on Riverside Avenue in Westport, Connecticut, sold for an average of $450 per square foot. The Feel organization paid Baywater $43 million for the assets, and it was said to be among the highest dollar amount per square foot in that area. So just a lot of really good news in the commercial real estate market for sellers of things. And, you know, hopefully the cooling off of the economy as the Fed taps the brakes and so forth, maybe slows down the growth somewhat so that the party doesn't become too exuberant, but doesn't uh, take away the punch bowl entirely and, and sellers continue to get good values for their sales. I think we need to talk to Martha and Haley Manis on getting us a, a breaking news sounder, but for every time we have a record price, because the last couple of weeks have been pretty incredible in terms of these per unit numbers that we're seeing. So like, I'm envisioning every time you go through a story, we get some sort of a, maybe it's the all right at the end of the podcast that we just keep playing that every time there's a record price. We could do that or a cash register sound <laughs> or, some, or something like that, you know, just to, to jazz it up. It's in our budget. We got it. We got this. So Lonnie, a few minutes ago, you were talking about our bank consortia data with the taller data. And interestingly, the Fed released its updated scenarios for 2022 for stress testing. So what are the takeaways from the updated hypothetical scenarios, Manus? Well, I thought they were incredibly benign. That was my first reaction reading them. Although I'm kind of a tourist in, in stress testing, we do have some experts here that really follow this stuff in and out. Uh, Matt Anderson at TREP being one of them, who is really the expert on how to interpret the new data. He has built top-down stress testing models for banks, which test their balance sheets under all different types of economic scenarios. And he has an amazing track record of identifying which bank banks you know, were going to fail I think out of the 300 or so banks that failed during the great financial crisis, he identified 295 as likely to fail, and it turns out that they did. And he also helped build our 
our bottom-up model for commercial real estate defaults under stress tests. And so I went to him to see what his reaction was. And, and he was of a like mind to what I was thinking, which is these are quite benign and they hardly strike a chord. You know, they're almost like a misnomer now to call them stress tests. In the severe case, the severely adverse case, unemployment goes up to 10%. Well, we already know that during COVID, unemployment went up to 20%. So this is not particularly stressful other than the fact that in the stress test, it goes up to 10 and it kind of lingers there for a while. And it kind of more benign for me was that to stress your commercial real estate assets, they wanted every asset to endure a 40% cut in value, right? So if you had a $150 million loan, $200 million value, a 75 LTV, they would want to say, assume that 200 million goes down by 40%. Right? So you're talking $120 million value. Once you get value that's negative equity, the likelihood of default goes up considerably. And, and, and that's the stress test that they have. My problem with this is that in many segments, values have gone up by more than 40%. You know, maybe not in one year, but certainly over two years, things are up in multifamily in industrial, in stealth storage, in warehouses, distribution centers, fulfillment centers, you know, not hotels for sure. Um, so to say, we want to assume a 40% discount to current values to stress these does not sound particularly stressful to me. It sounds like barely a reversion to the mean. And in that regard, if you're a bank, I think you probably feel like you dodged a bullet. This is benign. And if you're somebody who thinks the bank should be rigorously tested, this might be a little bit light for your uh, for your tastes. Yeah, I think you make some valid points on all of those things, uh, Manus. I mean, I think some of this stuff is a little bit of headline fodder. Like if you read it without having any institutional knowledge or any knowledge of what stress testing truly means, like you may say 40%, wow, that seems pretty severe. But to your point, when it's 40% of a value that's increased 100% over the last five years, it's, it's barely, you know, doing a test. I mean, it it uh, reckons me back to an old Eminem lyric. When I think of stress testing, it's knees weak, palms are sweaty. There's vomit already on his sweater, mom's spaghetti. That's what I know about stress testing. I don't know anything about models or anything else. That's what we have Matt Anderson and Mandis for and a few others on our team. But 40% when something's gone up in value significantly, especially across these other asset classes, you look at cell storage, for example, senior housing, mobile home parks, like uh, those things have seen astronomical increases on a relative basis over the last five-year period or so. Yeah, I'm just kind of scrolling through this data that I keep for myself. And, you know, granted, some of the stuff I'm looking at, the last sale was 2016 or 2017, so it's a longer window of time. But kind of seat of the pants as I look for these, these valuation increases, I, you know, I, I think the mean must be 60 or 70% you know, up. And I see tons that are triple digits. So like I said, I, I, I think the stress test is, um, is, is quite benign. And, and I, I think it will, you know, banks have been passing these things with flying colors for a long time. They've built up their capital base, they've built up their reserves and, and so forth. So I, I wasn't expecting any issues to begin with, but seeing these numbers, I think it'll be, you know, uh, quite easy for banks to, to pass this thing. But having heard Lonnie rap a little bit there, I can't wait for the next Christmas party and, and getting him to the karaoke machine. That is, uh, 
that's on my bucket list now. I'm not sure oh, you, you really wrapped about... it though. You just well, kind of like recited it. I you might need to work <laughs> on the wrap angle of that, Lonnie. I don't know. Maybe you just don't wrap in Texas. Oh no, I if if I wasn't in CRE, I would I wanted to be a rapper when I grew up. So if you uh if you throw a little Drake on, uh I can do some Drake like and maybe that's not rapping. Um that's kind of pop rap, I guess, pop, you know, R and B. But uh yeah, if uh man is talking about being a DJ earlier, I, I don't have DJ skills, but uh I can write some lyrics. You can write well, it's so- funny, Martha's kind of like equating Lonnie to that guy at Footloose, the sidekick to Kevin Bacon who couldn't dance and had no rhythm. Like, is that what you're saying, Martha? <laughs> I, did, I didn't say that, but, but I, you know, I think he's got to work on his, his rap style a little bit. So was it Footloose, you know, didn't that take place in Texas? Isn't that uh, a place Some where you couldn't state dance? Where you're not allowed to dance. I don't know what state that is. <laughs> don't want to live there. <laughs> well, we talked a little bit about uh, the, the write-up that Matt Anderson did. And I think we're releasing that next week. So if you're interested in that and you want kind of the, the detail behind some of the commentary we had today, uh, give us a shot and we'll, uh, we'll send that to you. And while we're on the topic of lenders, Lonnie, you went to the Mortgage Bankers Association event in the last week where obviously lots of lenders show up to find out what's going on and what are the trends. So what were some of the, the big takeaways? Yeah. So I'll say the NBA conference was pretty well attended. Uh, unfortunately, the sunny San Diego moniker didn't play out, but in true NBA fashion, we had uh, we had at least one day with kind of a constant drizzle and a little bit of a chill in the air. But on a relative basis, this conference was really well attended. Um, there were a lot of people there. There was a lot of deals going on, hands being shook, you know, pats on the back. They had a really nice lineup of uh, some celebrities on the first night. Thurman Thomas was there signing autographs. They had uh, Magic Johnson as the keynote. So. Uh, you know, NBA puts on a really great conference and this was no exception. I would say in terms of takeaways, uh, there was still optimism. I know the last time I was at the NBA conference was, I think it was about the last conference we went to before COVID hit. And the narrative coming out of that conference was, you know, just more blue sky, open space. And it, it was a little more managed this year, but there was still optimism. I think the, uh, the first half of 22, everyone seems to be really optimistic about what's happening transaction-wise, origination-wise, opportunity-wise. Definitely some chatter about interest rates. Uh, That's definitely becoming part of the narrative and and on everyone's radar. Um, I don't think it really tampered down the the optimism, although it is something that was discussed. And the other takeaway was uh, the the ESG uh, component. So they had at least one panel that was dedicated to ESG with a lot of the large insurance companies and, um, and debt funds talking about you know, opportunities related to ESG and some of the underwriting requirements that they're having to incorporate. So it's really interesting. I think we've gotten to the point now where instead of asking what inning are we in now, it's, you know, what are your strategies for ESG? And it's similar in terms of ambiguity on the answer. You know, we all agree, or the lenders would agree that ESG is a real thing that has to be you know calculated into their underwriting, but nobody's really sure what that truly means. And there's really not a set of uniform standards. So Overall, great conference. Always good to be in San Diego. Got to meet and see a lot of people we hadn't seen in a couple of years face-to-face, which is always great. And it's, it's good to see that there's still optimism in the marketplace, even with some of these things we hit on the, uh, the intro here today. I mean, how could there not be, when you think about it, that when you see the velocity of transactions and the size of the transactions, and you know that every one of these sales 
comes with, you know, a big mortgage that's being refinanced and new lending coming in. You know, I, I think that these guys have to be thinking, you know, now that we're a month and a half in, this is just going to be an extraordinary year of, of volume. You know, I came out two months ago when I was asked to uh, submit my numbers for, you know, a poll for what CMBS issuance would be in 2022. And I think last year for like SASB and conduits, I think we were 110 billion, another 50 billion in, in CRE CLOs for a total of 160. And I put out a number for the conduit SASB space of 130. You know, a 20% increase is gonna feel pretty good. And now I think I might miss that by, by half. Like I could see us being 180 billion of conduit and SASB in 2022, just based on the fact that every day you're seeing 20, 30, 40 deals getting done, transaction sales, north of 25 million in value. And some of these things are billions, right? If portfolio buys by Blackstone or uh, Brookfield or others, right? It, sometimes you see enormous ones. But the velocity is like nothing I've seen since like 2006, 2007. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think that guy that came, pulled up in the uh, Ford Explorer this year is coming back next year with a, uh, a Porsche. Well, it's not just the transactions, man. As you look at some of these earnings from the hotel groups, so we all know the bottom fell out on those when COVID hit. But Hilton, you know, they, uh, they met their earnings estimates, beat revenue forecasts. Occupancy rose to 63%, which was up from 21% a year ago in the same period. You know, comparable uh, revenue per room or rev par increased 104% in the fourth quarter. So, I mean, Hilton seems to be knocking it out of the park. Um, Hyatt Hotels uh, was far worse than feared loss in the fourth quarter. So they've kind of turned it around. We have information on choice. Rev par was up. Uh, Wyndham revenue soared 32% to 392 million. So for all the things you just said on, the food groups or asset classes that we would expect to be excelling during this time, even the hotels are starting to roar back a little bit, which I think bodes well for those origination numbers. You probably saw the deal um, this week where Wynn did a sale leaseback of the big casino in Boston, the Encore, I think it's called. It's just outside of Boston, more than 2,000 rooms. Wynn sold it for $1.7 billion and uh, they will pay $100 million in rent per year, which turns out to be a, an effective rate on that $1.7 billion of 5.88%. But goodness, we're back, aren't we? Yeah, if we went back and looked at the first couple of SASB deals that priced out right after the pandemic with hotels, I remember you and uh, Joe talking about you know some of the carve-outs and caveats and things that had to go back into those deals to get them across the finish line. And uh, this just shows the market's fully recovered, at least perception. And, uh, and based on these, these few large, Blackstone had one in Las Vegas a few you know, weeks ago. It uh, seems like we're back and maybe even ahead of where we, where we were before. Yeah, for that win deal, just to, to close the loop, 835000 per room. Uh, and the buyer was uh, Realty Income Corp, $1.7 So, you know, we're back. One other earnings note was Airbnb. They beat Wall Street estimates on earnings and revenue in their fourth quarter. And their outlook looks really good because obviously they are a 
beneficiary of the work from home or work from anywhere type of business. So they said nearly half of all nights booked in the fourth quarter were for stays of a week or longer. And one in five were for stays of a month or more. So people are picking up their laptop and going to the beach or the mountains and working remotely rather than having to uh, stay in their domicile, wherever that might be. Well, it's like that line from the Lego movie, everything is awesome, right? That they were singing or everybody is awesome or something like that. The, uh, the catchy jingle that was right at the beginning. And it is a little hard to believe, right? That Airbnb and all the hotels are just blowing away estimates. You would think that there would be winners and losers. Airbnb would be taking away some share from the hotels or perhaps Airbnb wouldn't be growing as fast as the hotels were coming back or, or something, but everything is awesome, right? Casinos are being sold for huge prices. Uh, hotels are being sold for close to what their values were in 2019, sometimes surpassing them. Rev bars up, bookings are up, occupancy is up, and Airbnb is up. So it, it just goes back to this narrative that we're back and, and the economy is humming. Yeah, Airbnb, short-term rental, just another anecdotal Twitter story. If you if you look at the term SDR online, uh, you're going to be blown away with what these people are actually getting on a, on a monthly basis in revenue. So just in real terms, you have a single family home, you're renting out on a long-term lease, $2,500 a month. It probably produces $9,000 a month if you turn it into a short-term rental. So the, the economics on that are just crazy. So you know, there's, there's a story we picked up here, New York-based investment firm, Saluda Grade. They're uh, launching a venture with short-term rental operator Avant Stay or Avant Stay to buy 500 million worth of homes. Uh, the company stated this last week, uh, Saluda Grade says they're going to raise debt by selling mortgage bonds backed by its homes to investors. And effectively, they're trying to create the first vacation rental mortgage security. Um, so in this instance, the Avant Stay CEO, Sean Bruner, said the vacation rental sector will follow a route similar to that of single-family rental homes, which have attracted a surge in investment from private equity firms and other financial firms over the past decade. So everything you just said, Manus and Martha both, I mean, I think this is the new track for uh, for yield. It'll be interesting to see if this uh, if this investment venture can can play out to the same tune of Airbnb and some of these other short-term rental operators. They just can't call it timeshare, right? That has such a negative connotation. Yeah, that's bad. They have to uh, come up with a, a more modern, less tainted name for that particular offering that they're going to do. But, you know, what we saw in the single family rental market is, you know, what that does is it takes houses off the market and drives prices up, right? It reduces inventory of single family homes particularly those under 500,000 or in some markets under 300,000. So it makes buying a home a harder or more difficult endeavor for, and a more costly endeavor for um, families just starting out. And what you may see here, depending on what these, these guys end up doing with this new venture, if they start taking apartments off the market that would otherwise go to you know, middle class, upper middle class, and use those for, you know, month to month or week to week housing, you know, Airbnb style, what that would do is drive the price up of multifamily housing, right? If that's the model, and you're taking, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 units off in 
each of the top 50 metros, that's just going to drive the cost up. And that's good for them for coming up with some, uh, you know, a new way to, to profit from it, but not a good thing for families just starting out, people on the lower end of the economic spectrum. And, you know, I, I hope supply can keep up with whatever demand is taken off the market. Yeah, I was talking to a, a guy this week that's looking at some property up in Colorado, uh, like in the Breckenridge area. And to answer your question there, man, it's, uh, they don't call them timeshares anymore. They call them equity shares. So you uh, you get a one-eighth equity share. Um, it sounds a little more institutionalized. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's too uh, name adjacent for me. I think they should have called it Blue Skies or something. Or... <laughs> so turning to shout outs. We have a podcast fan put forward by Susie, who's commented several times in the last few weeks. Omar B is a big fan of the podcast and mentioned to Susie that uh, listens very frequently. Black Eagle commented on our Lauren Thomas episode. She said it was a great episode and watching pricing for Peloton and malls. So thank you. Ann L on LinkedIn is a fan, interesting fact-based, lively, and entertaining. It must be the uh, rapping that Lonnie does that she was referring to. And we had a couple of folks that commented on our Twitter poll on favorite Super Bowl food after our chili cheesecake comment last week. So I think chicken wings and nachos won. And last and certainly not least, Dave and Tammy Goldfisher from the Henley Group, they were our first podcast guests. They were out at NBA and uh, stopped and talked to our team and apparently had very nice things to say about you, Manis. Well, that's great to hear. They're, they're lovely people and, and they do bring a great service to this market, helping people navigate the restructuring process, um, really knowledgeable about uh, CMBS lending, uh, the role that special servicers play and so forth. So uh, I wish I had been out in San Diego to, to see them because they're, they're great people. Uh, I have a couple of shout outs here, which might fall into the category of the height of um, lack of consideration. I do owe data and responses to both Joel and Deborah. Joel had some questions about our hotel losses and Deborah had some questions about mall losses in the past. And how's that for lack of consideration? I, I forgot to send them emails back, letting them know that I, I, I still remembered that I have things to do for them. Instead, I'm telling them via the, the podcast. So they have to listen to find out that I've been dragging my feet. And of course, uh, for many of us, Monday is a holiday. So it'd be a short week. So, you know, I'm a bit of a grammarian geek. So I noted that President's Day strangely is spelled President's Day, no apostrophes, President's Day with an apostrophe and President's Day after the S apostrophe. So I think it's up to interpretation whether you think we're celebrating one president or several and it belongs to them. Well, Martha, I am a man of little words. And to be clear, I'm not a man of few words, I'm a man of little words you know, two syllables or less. So if you're looking to me for help on this particular subject, you know, I think you have to go back uh, elsewhere looking for that elements of style book that you grew up with. I had that, see? There you go. You get up to word like president with three syllables and, and you're, you're kind of outside my sweet spot. <laughs> you're beyond your abilities. 
Oh, well, I, I've uh, I put together a few slide decks over the last couple of weeks. So I just want to confirm that uh, Martha does have a really good eye for finding those grammatical mistakes. Uh, she's uh, she's a really good proofreader. And uh, it's pointed out that I maybe have some deficiencies when it comes to uh, where the apostrophes are supposed to go. And any talent works in this economy. So with that, we'll close. Thank you to our producer, Haley Keene. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting. If you have a question or comment, send an email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the podcast with your favorite provider. Enjoy your day off, guys. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.